Welcome to Raising Nashville. I'm Bucky. Juicebox. Oh, boy. And oftentimes on this show, we talk about the city of Nashville, and we want to do that today. And we, we often bring to light some things that you might not know about Nashville. We've covered things like Jack Daniels or movies made in Nashville or... The Furniture District. So, And we like to... We, I don't know. We, we like to discover things about Nashville, but in, in a world of bachelorette parties and lower Broadway and hot chicken and whiskey, there is a, a dark side of Nashville that not many people know about. The seediness. The, not the seediness. Let's go darker than that. Darker than seedy? Darker than seedy. Okay. I'm talking serial killers. Okay. Murder. Shoot. All right. Music row. (laughs) (laughs) And those three three things are going to tie in today's podcast because, uh, like we said, you know, most of you think of Nashville in one light, um, and this is the dark side of Nashville that we do have a past. I'm sure most cities do. Um, there's probably serial killers in not a lot of cities because it, it's not like a widely, uh, I don't know, acted uh, on thing. No, no, no. Actually, I think I think the FBI is like really saying something, saying there is most likely at least one active serial killer in any large metropolis. Okay. I believe that. Yeah. Well, fair enough. And what defines a serial killer and how far you want to go? I feel like if you kill more than one person, you might be a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that, that could be the not- definition. Um, so, uh, today we're going to bring to you, uh, three things that you might not know about Nashville. Uh, and this is the murder edition, murder edition. (laughs) All right. (laughs) The, the reason this episode came to light is because Juicebox came, we, we wanted to do three more things that you didn't know about Nashville. Our last episode was really popular when we covered, you know, Jimi Hendrix getting his start. The fact that prohibition started in Nashville and prostitutes and prostitution. We were the first city to legalize prostitution. So we wanted to bring three more things and Juicebox came back to us and said, Hey, I want to cover uh, the song by uh, George Strait and and Alan Jackson, "The Murder on Music Row," and I was like, "Okay, I'm not going to look anything into this. I want to, I want to, I want to hear it fresh." And then I, a light bulb went off in my head, so I called Old Boy and I said, "Hey, how about the th- the things that we decide to do that people don't know about Nashville also have to do with murder?" We looked up three things today. We're going to cover. The murder of Marsha Trimble, which right. um, rocked our parents' uh, world in, right. in 1975. Uh, and then uh, somewhere in the mid-90s, George Strait and Alan Jackson got together and wrote a song called The Murder on Music Row. They didn't write it. Oh, never mind. They That's performed right. it. or Yeah. yeah. They, they, they uh, supplied their vocals for the song Murder on Music Row. And then in 1997, uh, for most of you our age that remember this, there was the fast food serial killer in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And you guys might not know that we had a serial killer that targeted fast food. So I uh, kind of want to dive into that a little bit. Um, but what we're going to get started in chronological order. So we're going to go back. We're going to take you guys, our listenership, all the way back to 1975. Hell yeah. <laughs> Let your hair down. <laughs> Which actually, it's, uh, it's about to get a lot darker. So in February 25th, 1975, at dusk in Green Hills, and for those that don't know what Green Hills, it's a really affluent neighborhood, still affluent in, in Nashville. It uh, really. sucks to get in and out of. Right. There's like one road in and one road it's out. It's a nightmare. It's got a really nice mall. Well, I never liked it. They don't have a toy store, so I've never liked that mall. You're right. They didn't have a toy store. You're damn right. That sucks. So a Girl Scout by the name of Marsha Trimble disappeared while out delivering cookies. All right, so it's dusk, sun's just going down. She's like, Mom, I'm going out. I'm going to deliver these cookies people had bought mm-hmm. to some neighbors. Shout out so, to our, to our uh, Boy and Girl Scout episode. You're right, which is, I mean, you know, I was like, man, we'll put my daughter in Girl Scouts. Read the story. I was like, fuck it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's really not a joke. It's, it, this is this really kind of rocked Nashville at the time. So, um, so she disappears without a trace uh, into thin air. And... 
local, state, police, and the FBI got involved uh, searching for this little girl. And she was nine years old at the time. Uh, She wasn't found for 33 days, and she was found in a nearby garage. She was uh, fully clothed, covered with like a a tarp or an inflatable pool. I I read different things. I think I saw it was an inflatable pool. I saw that too. Um, But then something said a shower curtain. Um, And then her, her... the Girl Scout cookies she had were scattered beside her. Uh, an autopsy revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and her hyroid bone had been broken, suggesting strangulation. And real quick, so I had to look this up because I wanted to know what the hyoid bone is. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, it's a, it's this bone in your neck. It's right below your jaw. It's right here. Not your Adam's apple because not everybody has those. But it's this bone right here. So it's... Um, in 50% of, of strangulations, that bone is broken, so it's very commonly associated with that. So that was broken, um, so that's what they surmised, you know. Sure. So that kind of leads on that she wasn't, like, abducted and taken to a house. Like, that almost immediately happened, and they didn't find her. No. and Right. The, right. And they, they don't think she was moved around. They think she was probably lured into the garage and, and murdered, assaulted and murdered or murdered and assaulted they couldn't really tell sure so early focus by investigators was pointed at a 15 year old boy named jeffrey walmack he was he was one of the last people to see her alive and when he declined to buy cookies from her um because he says he didn't have any money now the story goes when this kid uh learned of the disappearance of the little girl because i mean he's a neighbor he went to the house to tell the police what he knew and was aggressively interrogated when asked to empty his pockets, he had a half a roll of pennies and five dollars and a condom. All right, and I know that's weird, but uh, for a fifteen-year-old boy, sure. I well, probably had that. At yeah, no, yeah, I, I, you know, just for giggles. But the contradiction um, in the money made the police a little suspicious. Like, okay, you said you didn't have money to buy cookies, but you got five dollars in your pocket, and the condom suggested he didn't want to spend it on cookies. Yeah, yeah that's... no shit, man. Like, I, I, give this kid a break. Um, and then the condom suggested sexual activity, which they immediately just jumped all over. I mean, right? Sure. I want to focus on this kid for a minute because this ruined his life. Um, and it's really unfo- unfortunate for him because it seemed like he was doing the right thing. Like he saw the girl when the, when the police, you know, clearly police are on the street. Everybody's out looking for this little girl. He had seen her earlier that day, so he went to, you know, he just went to tell his piece, and they jumped all over him, apparently. Sure. So I guess, real quick, the direction you're taking us in, that means that this kid did not do it? or Because I'm nope. going to feel really weird if you're making me feel sympathetic for yeah. somebody that actually <laughs> no. murdered this no, kid. No, no, no. No, no, no. Okay. He, he did not do it. Um, So they the interrogation was pretty intense. His mother was like, okay, you know what? Let's pause this shit. We're getting a lawyer, which the police were like, all right, that's even more suspicious, which is horse shit, man. Sure, it's a 15-year-old right. kid. So I don't think there's anything else to really suggest he had done it other than he came forward to say he saw her. It sounds like they just wanted to close the case. Mm-hmm. And, and at this time, she had not been found either. So, okay. you get, so you also have to think, like, they're desperate to find her. So I understand they're probably grasping at straws. I, I get that, but also – maybe go a little lighter on the kid, but the, the police uh, and the authorities hounded this kid for five years and then arrested him in 1980 on circumstantial evidence. But eventually five years later, Oh, it goes on longer. Wow. They, they, he was the only suspect. So he was 25 years later, right? Yep. Okay. And he remained the primary suspect for nearly 30 years, which hung over this guy's head. I mean, he, he, he Did he go forever. to jail for thirty years? No, no, no. He got oh. out. They released. They didn't have any evidence on okay. him. Okay, but and they released him. But I mean, it, it is hung over. He's been associated with this murder, disappearance, and murder of this little girl forever, for his whole life, and he and he forever will be. Which is so unfortunate. I hate it for this guy. So, all right, DNA was uh, evidence was taken from the crime scene and and from Marsha, but nothing indicated Jeffrey Walmack or anyone else. Okay, and the case went cold for thirty three years. Then in 2008, DNA matched that of Jerome Sidney Barrett, who was an, who has an extensive sexual assault record and had been working in the same Green Hills neighborhood around the time of the disappearance. Hmm. So this this fucking real this piece of shit motherfucker right here. Uh, I have to jump around a little bit because it's kind of the the records I, I read were a little different. So. He was arrested in March of 1975, 15 days after Marsha's disappearance for raping a Belmont student. Wow. 
and 15 days after 15 days after okay and dna i guess you know they they kind of run these people's dna against different cases as the technology gets better and better and better like they just keep entering that shit to to hit sure. old cold cases so in 2008 um is when his his dna also matched this murder of a vanderbilt student which happened three weeks prior to, to, to marshall trimble hmm. so this guy's a serial abuser and and rapist and, and sure. all that so um he, he's in jail for the rest of his life fuck him yeah um so the impact on nashville is huge uh young white girl on green hills kidnapped and murdered i mean i know it i know it you know i asked my parents about it and they were like oh yeah like you know that's when the innocence was kind of lost and and uh, you know, people start it, people start locking their doors and everything else. So I talked to my mom about that, and I I remember calling her and I said, "Hey, does the name Marsha Trimble ring a bell?" And it was almost like a a, a very uh, weird silence before she said, "Oh yeah, I mean, oh yeah." So uh, apparently, back then in 1975, this was like the first real thing that rocked Nashville. Sure. Like nobody believed it could come this close to home. And the story breaks, and and apparently kids are not necessarily on lockdown, but there's curfews implemented. Uh, parents are, you know, walking to schools. Buses like had a much lower percentage of riding to school. Parents yeah. were just taking them during this time um, until they found, I guess, until they found the body because they didn't know if the person was still out there. Oh yeah, a full a full month went by without any leads in the case, and, and you know, without finding her body, which really disturbed residents you know and and civilians here in nashville so um i want to read a quote from the nashville police captain mickey miller in that moment this is his quote in that moment nashville lost its innocence our city has never been and never will be the same again every man woman and child knew that if something that that horrific could happen to that little girl it could happen to anyone and i think that kind of just sums up the fear and and everything that was put into uh that that resulted out of that right which is a pretty insane story i mean just thinking uh one the killer wasn't wasn't discovered until 33 years later two a kid who just didn't want to buy cookies has had to deal with this for 33 years yeah um so uh, shout out to him and uh i do you think that he buys girl scout cookies whenever he can Okay. No, I mean, I, dude, I'd be scarred for life. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's one of those things, too. Like, that affects things so much further because then it makes people afraid to even come forward to the police to try to report something if there is something going on because you don't know if you're going to be immediately thought of as a suspect sure. or if, you know, what, like... It's it's real weird, the the thinking of their of the police force back then. I mean, they just really narrowed in on this... on this one thing i mean i don't know it's just so it's so bizarre see i I was gonna go in a direction more conspiratorial and thinking that it was like maybe some well-to-do person that lived in green hills and they were trying to cover up for him or something like that because the to me the whole thing is like they find her in a garage in green hills a month later and she obviously has been there for a month like who doesn't go in their garage for a month like who who doesn't smell something that's maybe off from a body like in your garage, I don't yeah, know. I, I, I was, and it was garage, was it exactly? I couldn't get that information because I thought that was odd too, and um, because it was a, it was a one, it was in February, so it was like really okay. cold outside. Right, um, yeah, so, so I guess you're not out doing some yard work, maybe, and yeah, the body's and, not going to smell that bad. Yeah, and be cold. okay, it didn't, de- she didn't decompose, so she was in, it was in still very good condition uh, which is weird to talk about somebody's body so yeah i'm out all right then let's stop that was the uh the murder of marcia trimble there's plenty of stuff online you can look up about that if you want to go down some kind of uh weird uh, rabbit hole or you like murder mysteries um okay so for mine uh bucky you talked about it a little bit there was a song it was actually written by somebody named larry cordell and performed by larry cordell in the lonesome standard time originally they wrote it in i think 1998 and then it was ended up being recorded and performed by george Strait and That's alan jackson a, larry cordell and the what lonesome standard time lonesome standard time i mean that sounds like a band that was formed at like bobby's idol hour on music row that no longer exists shout out to bobby's it was like the dive bar of music row um anyway so weird thing is like 
I remember before I moved to Nashville, probably three or four years before I moved to Nashville, I was like up late at night one night, didn't have cable. It was one of those shows that came on like murder mystery thing that came on at like two in the morning on like Fox or something like that. Total like just cheesy low budget show that was also like a rerun, you know, from probably... 10 years before prior to that. Yeah. So one of the cases on there was this murder on music row thing. And for some reason it's like always stuck with me in the back of my head, like this story. And it it was just so crazy. So when I had the chance to like dive into it a little bit more, I got pretty excited about it. Hell yeah. I'm excited. I have no idea what the hell this is about. I listened to the song this morning and it's, it's great. Okay. So let me just jump out in front of that real quick. So there's some articles that people were kind of comparing that song and saying it had something to do with Murder on Music Row, which happened in 1989, which I'm going to dive into here in a minute. I don't think that that's true. No. I, I think the lyrics don't reflect that at all. I think the people that that have made that comparison either have a much better grasp on the metaphors I'm not understanding or something in this song or... I'm not sure, but I don't really feel like it has much to do with it. I even feel like it's a little bit in poor taste because on the Larry Cordell, his uh, album that he put out that has this album that has this song on it, they show like uh, the silhouette of a person in the street with a guitar next to it. And the guitar has a silhouette around it too. It's just very, it's kind of in poor taste. I mean, granted this was 10 years after the fact, but for those of you out there, this would be a good time to pause our podcast and go to Amazon, Apple or Spotify and listen to the murder on Music Row, uh, performed by George Strait and Alan Jackson. Yeah, and if you're anything like me, you won't make it past 15 seconds in because it's a god-awful country song. And when you listen to it on the surface, it sounds... I mean, obviously the song is about how old country was murdered by new country. Exactly. It's like Florida Georgia Line came around and kicked you know, Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash and all these people in the nuts and said, we're taking over from here on out. And that's what the song, to me is about yeah no that's that's how i interpreted it too i mean i went through and read the lyrics and was like trying to draw parallels to it but i couldn't really find that many so f that song we're not even talking about it okay so let's just jump into the story on thursday march 9th 1989 kevin hughes a 23 year old chart director for cashbox magazine and his friend sammy sadler a 21 year old music artist were ambushed outside evergreen records on 16th avenue which is also known as music row if you're not familiar with it uh, Sammy was shot in the arm or shoulder. It's kind of gray area where he was shot there. And he barely survived because the bullet hit like a artery and he almost mm-hmm. bled out. Um, but Kevin was not so lucky. He was shot in the back and then chased down by this assailant and then finished off. like Execution style. Yeah, execution style. Damn. Now, despite having five witnesses to the shooting, no one could really give a good description of the assailant. And then after his murder, newspaper report, New, Nashville newspapers reported that it was a robbery gone bad in an area where violence was on the rise. And that was just kind of how they that was kind of how they reported it. But people that were kind of in this music scene were like, this seems suspect. We think this is like almost like a targeted hit on this guy. Because there he was were... a young dude that was up and coming and he was trying, you know, he loved the music industry. He was big on working on these charts, which I'm going to dive into in a second. So there was there was that speculation, but investigators couldn't find anything to support it. And uh, they felt like it was kind of like, the way that it happened was almost too sloppy to be a hitman, if that makes sense. Sure. Like, yeah, I get it. It just didn't but feel five, like it was a professional. Five witnesses? Five witnesses, yeah. That's insane. They couldn't put together anything. Right. So... I'm going to jump. I'm going to sidebar here a little bit. Kevin Hughes worked for something called Cashbox Magazine. Now, you might, some of you, I don't know if you guys know what Cashbox Magazine is. Nope. Mm-mm. Okay. Cashbox Magazine is a service that started in 1947 that is similar to like the Billboard charts. It would chart music and sure. it would be based okay. on like radio plays, sales, and then also they would do like, I guess, call bars and stuff like that and get ju- jukebox numbers. So they were like, Averaging in all these numbers and get figuring out the popularity of artists that started in you know 1947 and it trucked on. It was like really big in the 50s, like it was comparable, like maybe even bigger than Billboard. Hmm. And this was all done, you know, they made they built these charts by basically people like this Kevin Hughes guy, a chart director who was called a chart director, who would just call these different places and get the numbers and report them and build these charts basically. So okay. it was like how artists determine how popular they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that web that uh, magazine eventually ended up closing down. I think now it's a website. 
it like reopened or whatever, but it's a website now. But anyway, that, that was a really big thing back in the day before all that was automated. Okay, and I want to jump off on another sidebar here. Have you guys ever heard of the term payola? Payola? Yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah, I guess like, I, I'm not sure I could. Uh, I don't know. No. Payola. Okay, I've pay- heard of payoli. That's peyote. No. <laughs> okay. I don't think They're all I, things. I don't think it's either one of those things. I've heard payola. Okay, so payola is like basically it was paying off like radio DJs and radio managers and stuff like that to get artists played. Okay. Uh, it's something that we've probably all known has been like we just assumed happened. You definitely know what I'm saying? happened. Pay and, to play. Um, exactly. And there there's um there's a podcast called American Scandal that does a really good dive into this payola scheme and uh how like it was really started to come out in like the 50s and it took down some some like big radio DJs of the 50s cuz you know in the 50s like a radio DJ was like a super powerful popular sure. person. So like Dick Clark got mixed up in this. Dick Clark like that podcast does a like deep dive into this one guy named Alan Freed. I'm not going to go too much into it, but like his nemesis was basically Dick Clark. Dick Clark is doing the same thing. Dick Clark like has a monopoly on like publishing rights and radio rights and all this stuff. He's doing the shady thing, but just because he's like connected in a little bit better, like he gets away with it and other people get busted. Dick is clean. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm like I said, I'm getting sidebar here, but I feel like that we needed to talk about that a little bit sure. because that that weighs into this. Okay, back to the story. There were, um, when people, you know, had this, they were suspicious and were kind of speculating that this was a hit and this dude may have been taken out on purpose. There were two names that came up like all over and over again. It was a guy named Chuck Dixon and a guy named Richard F. Tony D'Antonio. <laughs> Whoa, that's a lot of Tonys. A not so clean dick. Who called himself the Tone. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Tony D'Antonio the Tone. So these guys basically were like record promoters or artist promoters or, you know, they had some kind of loose title like that. But they were basically in their whole thing was they were in on this payola scheme. They got in with Cashbox magazine. This guy, Chuck Dixon, was like described as people as like the godfather or something like that. Like he rolled around in a caddy with gold chains and like big sunglasses and like basically intimidated people. And like bribe people into getting these artists on the track. And gotcha. t- tone was his consigliere. Yeah, more or less. Or yeah. hitman. Basic. Yeah. Okay. Well, he was he was mixed up in it too. So D'Antonio, like, there's a you know it's a whole convoluted story, but D'Antonio basically ends up running Cashbox Magazine. So between him and Dixon, they have all these people in their pockets. They're able to manipulate these independent artists. Um, I see what you mean. Independent artist charts, which is like the whole scheme is like, if you're an independent artist and you chart high enough on this thing, then the major labels are going to recognize, notice you, pick you up. That almost never happened, by the way. And these independent artists would be dropping anywhere from like 5,000 to some, one person reported paying them $500,000 to try to get their album promoted enough to make them famous. Sure. And he's squeezing them. Yeah, basically. And then, you know, yeah. they're, they're desperate. They're trying to make it big. They're right. people for coming from not Nashville. They're people coming from all over the United States just trying to make a beer, getting taken advantage of, basically. That's smart. I mean, everybody comes here to make it, and right. they, they never criminal, do. It's, it's, it's like the, the people in the shopping malls that would get you to take headshots and say that they were going to put you in a modeling career, but you had to give them like 50 bucks. Yeah, it's a scam, but I mean, it's... Yeah, it's a huge scam. Like, it didn't, I mean... And it didn't pay off. It, but it, for hardly anybody, it didn't pay off. And it was such a huge scam, like, even the guy, Sammy Sadler, that was friends with Kevin Hughes, had report, you know, he talked about having a song that charted... It was like there was no... He never played it live once, and there was something else. He, ne- like, never got radio play or something like that, but it was on these charts just based off this manipulation. Right. Wow. A song nobody ever heard. Yeah, basically. And then it was like, they even report... I feel like I'm getting so sidetracked here, but there's even reports of like, they would call up these radio DJs that they had in their pocket because they'd been bribing them for so long or whatever. And these radio DJs would be like, fine, you know, I'll, I'll doctor a chart and send it out to you of how many times we played this song, but just know I'm not playing this song on the air because it's not good. Yeah, sure. exactly. Anyway, all, all that to be said, this guy, Kevin, who was like huge music fan, like he had been a music fan ever since he was a kid. He like, you know, there's reports of him like listening to songs on the radio and like creating his own charts and stuff like that. Like that's how obsessed he was with just music in general. So to him, 
this is like a dream job. He went to Belmont. He gets this job making these charts. Like it's amazing. You know, he's compiling all this stuff and he starts to see something funny in the numbers. He starts to see, you know, the chart that he's putting together is different than the chart that they're actually putting out. Publishing. Yeah. yeah, And he's, and people are calling him and asking him what's up. And he's like, you know, he doesn't really, he doesn't really have an answer. But he he knows something's going on. Right. But but okay. he plays a fair game, right? He wasn't well, he getting does. paid off. He was not in on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so and the report is he like the week before he was murdered, he had talked to his brother and then his family and some other people and was like, I'm on the cusp of something big here. I don't know if I want to go forward with it. Like he was basically dropping hints that he was onto something really big and was just like didn't know, you know, knew it would ruin his career in the music industry if he brought it out, but he, you know, he was he was deciding whether to do it. Also, I bet he was a little scared because you know this Dixon guy was like more Chuck like and Tone. Say, yeah, they were more or less like the mafia. They weren't connected to the mafia, but they were might as well have been like local Nashville mafia. Yeah, Nashville. Yeah, brutes. So anyway, Kevin, in, like like I said at the beginning, Kevin ends up getting murdered on in March of 1989. Nothing comes of this. For the longest time, nothing comes to this. There was speculation on those two guys' names, but you know, nothing ever happened. Right. No charges were brought up. It was basically just a straight, cold, dead case. Until 2000, somebody came forward and um, you know, pointed the finger at these guys and put the police on their trail, basically. And then in 2001, when this Dixon guy died, more people came forward and they're speculating is because people were, had been intimidated by this guy for so long. They didn't want to testify against him. But once he was like dead now, the picture, they were like, okay, we need to start telling, no telling what's going on. So it was Chuck. So, you know, Chuck is like the head of this mafia type thing organization they got going on. Like we said, Tony, the tone is his like right hand man or whatever. So by this time though, what, by the time that Dixon died, Tony is not living in Nashville anymore. He is working the casino floors in Las Vegas somewhere. So they go out there. Police, <laughs> police get enough information to get a warrant. They go out there. They arrest him, bring him back, put him on trial. It's basically like all these people come forward, and then it was – I can't remember who exactly – one of the witnesses was like – said they were sitting in on a meeting with them where they started to bring up their worry that Kevin was going to rat him out, you know, and like bring this – bring you know flip on this whole thing and bust them so chuck dixon is quoted as saying i will handle kevin hughes and if i can't handle him he'll be gone straight up so i mean that sounds pretty ominous sure yep a week later the dude is dead right yep, that's it so it comes out like you know dude's on trial he had Back in the day, back in 1989, the tone had um, had people like lie for him, so he had alibis and say he was here and say he was there. So all those people ended up flipping on him. There was somebody that sold him a th- uh, the gun that was used in the murder. He test fired it into the backyard of this person. The police were able to go dig so many years later, dig up the bullet, match it to the same bullet that killed Kevin, and were like science. Yeah, CSI it. stuff really exists. That's insane. Dude. So it does. I mean, but you know, that was 2003. That was, you know, 14 years after the fact. Yeah. And then, so anyway, uh, the tone was ended up being convicted, was sentenced to life in prison. He actually died in prison of natural causes in 2014. I think when all this was, I looked it up. I think when all this was going down, he was, when the murder took place, he was like in his early forties or something like that. So, you know, he was getting pretty old in jail. So your entire tale really has nothing to do with the George Strait, Alan Jackson song, murder on music row. Not really. That's basically the end of that story. You know, ended up finally convicting the dude, but it sucks that they had to kill this kid. that was just like, basically going to disrupt them making money. Yeah. It sounds like a great movie idea. Um, I mean, ties to Nashville murder, uh, has to do with covering something up. I mean, you've got yeah. all of the ingredients for a great film. Well, the other thing that was crazy too, like kind of to draw a parallel to the story the old boy told is the, that guy, Sammy Sadler, when no one was convicted and people still thought that it was like, you know, a hit that people weren't buying that it was a robbery gone wrong. They started pointing fingers at him and being like, no did you have shit. something to do with this? You know, you, you wanted to get on the charts. You wanted to be an up and coming artist. He was like, you know, oh. trying to stop manipulating the charts. So basically, I'm not saying his life was ruined, but like he was a victim too. Yeah, he was a victim well, also beyond just being shot. Shot. Yeah. yeah. 
Damn. So my story actually um, it hits a little bit close to home for at least old boy and I. I don't think Juicebox really knows anything about. Uh, or let me ask you, because I asked my wife, who's been here in Nashville longer than you, and I said, have you ever heard of the fast food murders in Nashville? No. When you said this earlier, I thought it was just like uh, like you were talking about how fast food kills everybody eventually, and it was like you were saying fast food is a serial killer because it gives people high cholesterol. A 99-cent heart attack? Yeah. I thought you were taking it a different direction. <laughs> no, I was not. There was something very real uh, that struck Nashville in, but you know, between February and April of 1997. Yeah, and this hits very close to home to old boy and I because uh, there was a guy, a serial killer, that was murdering people who worked at fast food restaurants. And these restaurants, the first two of the three that he, this killing spree went on, uh, were in the neighborhoods that we grew up in, and it yeah. was like the Hermitage and Donaldson area. Yeah, you know, old boy went to McGavick. I went to DCA. I lived in. Her- we both lived in Hermitage, very close to each other. Yeah, uh, we visited these places multiple times where this happened. But if you didn't know this, there was a serial killer on the loose in the spring of 1997 that kind of. Uh, it caused so many things for the people of Nashville, especially uh, in those neighborhoods, because oh. they happened month after month after month, and nobody ever found anything. So we were all, I remember vividly, I mean, 97, spring of 97, we were both, what, sophomores in high school? Sophomores or juniors in high school. Yep. We had just probably gotten cars, uh, and our parents wouldn't allow us to go like down to the Taco Bell or McDonald's because this was going on. Sure. And I want to kind of paint a picture and bring that to light a little bit today. But um, there was a guy named Paul Dennis Reed Jr., and he was the serial killer in this story. Um, That's a very serial killer type of name. Paul. They're yeah. all very common names. Paul Dennis Reed Jr., uh, I'm just going to call him Paul. Um, he. I'll give you a little background on him. He was one of seven children. His parents divorced very early, and he lived with his sister and grandmother. Uh, He lived in Texas, in, I think, uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, It says from very early on he showed signs of, you know, anger and, you know, fighting and things like that. Aggression. I read from age four uh, to age eight, he attempted 17 times to murder the grandmother he was living with. Um, at four years old, I guess, I mean, what's that like swinging a baseball bat and it progressively gets more creative or worse. So when he was eight years old, his grandmother couldn't take it anymore and brought a priest into their home who decided that he needed to go to a boy's home. So he never really saw his family again, other than these weird visits afterwards, after he got out of the boy's home Mm. from eight years old on up to through adolescence and through his teenage years, he was, uh, kind of arrested, written tickets for, and taken to juvenile for, like, sexual abuse. He got into drug use really bad. He stole cars, theft, fighting, all these things. And then he finally got out of that boy's home, uh, you know, somewhere in the, uh, you know, early 20s or about 20 years old, uh, lived in and out of jobs, worked at car shops, stuff like that. Uh, until 1983. So in 1983, he's about you know 20 mid 20s or so, um, and he was caught doing an armed robbery at a Texas steakhouse. We'll say Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> I didn't mean to make that a joke. So he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Uh, seven years later, in 1990, he's actually paroled, and he's paroled against his family's wishes because they knew kind of how bad he was. He also got into some scuffles in prison, but it was a surprising parole. He goes back to work at like a factory. In 1992, he gets hurt, uh, and he gets a workers' comp settlement. And he, with that workers' comp settlement, he buys plastic surgery and a guitar. And he decides, because he was a very uh, irrational thinker, and it was very erratic on how he decide, like made decisions on life choices. So in 1992, he used his workers' comp settlement to buy plastic surgery and a guitar, and he taught himself guitar because he wanted to be a famous country music singer. Hmm. He was very into the brand-new Garth Brooks at the time. He loved the songs of Hank Williams Sr. Uh, and Merle Haggard and people like that. So he wanted to come to Nashville and make it. So he spends three years practicing on the guitar uh, in Texas. And in 1995, he moved to Nashville, according to uh, to some reports, to actually make it under the name Justin Parks. That I don't know if that's – that doesn't even sound like a great country name to me. Like, 
Paul Reed, Justin Parks, kind of like the same thing, right? Uh, you didn't necessarily need to change your name. So he moves to Nashville to make it, and he busks in the streets for a little bit and decides that, you know, he needs to get a job. Uh, he started living with a roommate. He gets a job at Shoney's. Um, and the Shoney's by the stadium? It is in not. Donaldson? It's the Shoney's in Donaldson. I think it was on Donaldson Pike. I don't yeah. think it's there anymore. Or Lebanon Pike. Is it Lebanon? Okay, yeah. yeah. So he gets a job at Shoney's, and he lives out there. So February 16th, 1997, two years after moving to Nashville, trying to make it, working at Shoney's and living with a roommate, um, one night at Captain D's in Donaldson. No, Sorry, let me rephrase. One morning at Captain D's in Donaldson, he shows up before the doors even open and convinces uh, a 16-year-old named Sarah Jackson and her 25-year-old manager, Steve Hampton, to allow him to come into the restaurant. Yeah. Uh, he said that he was applying for a job. And he was very well presented, and he was wearing you know, a collared shirt tucked into some khakis and walks in. Um, and as soon as he gets in, he pulls a gun out and forces him into the back uh, into the cooler and he makes them get down on their knees and he executes both of them in the back of the head. Um, he takes some money in the register. He takes a like coin, like all the coins in the register, all the cash that was in the register. And you got to think this was before opening. So there couldn't have been that much. Right. So he takes whatever he can and he takes off on foot. Uh, he crosses and it was on Lebanon Pike cause he crosses the four lane road and there's a median in the center, Damn. um, and gets to the other side and disappears behind some buildings and you know, nothing ever happened. I remember right then that that was the biggest story on the news. It was like, you know, people murdered at captain D's now. I'm not saying this happens all the time, but it was pretty, it wasn't common, but it was like, you know, two people murdered at a fast food restaurant. It was all over the news. There was no real panic at that time other than it happened in our neighborhood. And we were like, oh shit, there's somebody here. They haven't caught them. You know, what do we do? And I remember it being, you know, your parents would talk to you about it and like, you just wouldn't go out, especially us new drivers at the time. So back to Paul Reed, February 16th, that happened at Kaplan D's. At February 18th, 1997, he uses that money as a down payment on a car. Um, and he drives off the lot. I know we said it wasn't that much, <laughs> yeah, right? He just... must have gone to a, you know, at 97, what, it's like $125 down and this much a month or something. Yeah, so. so he buys that car and then uh, – February 27th, so we're talking nine, no, 11 days after he murders these two people in Captain D's, he is fired uh, from Shoney's by Mitch Roberts. Now, keep keep the name Mitch Roberts in mind because it's going to come up a little bit later in the story. But he goes in, apparently, and he's working, and there is literally uh, one of those not wanted posters, but there's a likeness drawn of him by a witness that saw him running across the street, hanging in every restaurant at this point. Because um, we're 11 days later, it's, it's become a big story. And it looks just like him. But the people at Shoney's said that he was so nice and so considerate and so well-behaved that it couldn't be him. And he joked about it being on the wall next to him. This is 11 days after the first murders. So he's a dishwasher at Shoney's at the time, and something happened between him and a short waitress, and he got very upset and threw a a porcelain dish at her. She moved, and it hit the wall, and the manager saw it and fired him immediately. Um, So he leaves, right? And then the story starts to die down a little bit over the next couple of weeks. You don't hear anything about him. And then, bam, on March 23rd, 1997, uh, after McDonald's closes in Hermitage, um, right there across from the old Hermitage Hills Baptist Church. Uh, the Bonas. So in the, right in front of the Bonas, yeah. that McDonald's. Uh, it closes, and four people, four employees are leaving, and he shows up with a gun and forces all four to go right back in the restaurant. It was almost like he was sitting outside the door. Mm-hmm. These people were 17-year-old Andrea Brown, 27-year-old Ro- Ronald Santiago, 23-year-old Robert Sewell, and Jose Gonzalez, um, which he was a little bit older, I think he was 27 or 28, um, they were all forced back into the McDonald's restaurant and into the storeroom where he made all four get down. Uh, he executed Andrea Brown, Ronald Santiago, and Robert Sewell with uh, the gun while they were on their knees, and then the gun breaks or back or misfires or something when he goes to shoot Jose Gonzalez. So he pulls out a knife and stabs him 17 times. After that, he takes $3,000 from the McDonald's safe, which I guess he got one of them to get it open, and he flees the scene. 
So Jose Gonzalez was stabbed 17 times, and he actually played dead during this robbery after the 17th stab, I guess. And um, uh, Paul Reed thought that he was dead and walked to the to the register of the safe and got the $3,000 and left. Turns out he was not dead. Um, and he had a family back in Mexico that he was working there for, his wife and daughter, and he is on record saying that like he just didn't know what to do but played dead for his family to hopefully somehow survive this. That's smart. Uh, and he comes in big in the case against Paul Reed you know, down the line. So um, this happens February, then March. Now all of Nashville is just like, what is going on? We have a guy killing people at fast food restaurants. It was insane, and especially for our neighborhood. At that point, like fast food took a hit, man. Nobody was going to them. Uh, it was sketchy even going to a drive-thru. I had a buddy who actually worked at that McDonald's after all this happened, and like I, I would wanted to go visit him, but my mom was like, you're not going to that McDonald's. And yeah. it's kind of the lightning strikes twice type thing. Like, I don't think it's going to happen, but your parents are so fear- fearful because these kids that are getting killed are around our age group. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we we had friends that lived in that in that neighborhood. I mean, it's at fifteen and sixteen years old. I worked at Taco Bell on Donaldson Pike. I worked at Steak and Shake on on uh, Old Hickory that? Boulevard. I worked at Wendy's. I worked at TCBY. Like, and yeah. all this was going on. Um, so it was insane for all of us. All right, so. Again, it kind of dies down, and uh, you don't hear very much about it. You I mean obviously it's daily on the news, but then April twenty third, nineteen ninety seven, uh, Paul Reed Jr. drives forty minutes to Clarksville, Tennessee, and uh, walks into a Baskin Robbins there and abducts twenty one year old Angela Holmes and sixteen year old Michelle Mace. He takes them to a local park, which has a cave in it, into the cave. He slits both their throats and leaves them for dead on the shore outside the cave of the of the creek. So he's Dunk. like escalating the thing now. Oh, he like is. Before it was just like robbery. Now he's kidnapping and like. Oh, yeah. I work in Clarksville. He took him to Dunbar Cave. Dunbar Cave. Yeah. Dunbar Cave State State Park. Um, Dude, I pass that cave every day. Do you really? I swear to God. Well, now you won't forget about this. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I won't forget about it anyway. So that happened April 23rd. Then, you know, at this point, all middle Tennessee is kind of on the loose because they haven't found this guy. Uh, let's say May passes June 25th. So we're talking two months after the, left, the third and final set of the murders. Uh, Paul Reed goes back to Mitch Roberts' house. The, Mitch Roberts in the story was the Shoney's manager that fired, fired him. him. Yeah, so he demands his job back on June 25th. This guy at this point has killed seven. Uh, no, yeah, seven people. Left one alive, but stabbed him 17 times. And he goes back to get his job at Shoney's. Um, yeah, what the hell? So he is on his front porch. He wants to get inside. He puts his hand on the door. Somehow the manager gets the door shut and locked and picks up the phone and obviously calls the police. So um, Paul Reed leaves. He drives down the road, and he is ultimately arrested uh, because they have the make and model of the car, the license plate, right. and everything. He's not, not going anywhere at, at this point. So they get him back, and at this point, he's just suspected for the murders. They don't know anything about this guy. They haven't seen him. Uh, they don't know what his prints are like or anything. Um the only two pieces of evidence they have on him are Jose Gonzalez that was stabbed 17 times. And, and this is crazy, the first murders that happened at Captain D's and Donaldson, they found a partial print on Steve Hampton's movie rental card in the middle of the like Lebanon Road. And that partial print they kept, and they finally matched that up to Paul Reed Jr. Uh, to string wow. together that. You know it was the '90s because there was a movie rental card. Movie wallet. rental card yeah. in the wallet. Yeah. Damn. So and he's so, he's well, also suspected because this has happened in Texas with fast foods and Illinois, and they happened in the exact same fashion prior to this, and they thought that he was a part of that because he had family in Illinois and family in Texas, but oh, they man. could never tie him back to those murders. I got a question, real quick. He was arrested because he threatened his manager. That's why. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. Because not. He went to, not no, he was not suspected for the murders. No, at all the point. manager of Shoney's suspected it potentially could be him after the the plate incident in the back. Oh, okay. And it, but just let it go and right. thought, well, it couldn't be him. He's too nice of a guy because he thought if I call the police, then I'll probably get accused of uh, 
sure. committing these murders. That's right. In and Nashville. so he, in uh, 1999, two years after the uh, after his arrest, he sits in prison. They finally go to trial. He has handed down seven death sentences, one for every person he murdered. It is still the harshest punishment ever handed down in the state of Tennessee to anybody. Um, which is insane. So he was living out his, not living out, he was awaiting his death sentences starting in 1999. Um, it gets all the way to, t- in 2008, uh, he gets on the chair and it is actually, um, what do you call it when uh, stayed? It was stayed when he was on the chair in 2008. Hmm. And then it happened a couple of years, a couple of years later. And then in 2013, he actually died in prison from pneumonia um, and still <laughs> awaiting his seven death sentences. Um, Too easy. But here's why. And this is what pisses me off about some systems. And you could be for it and you could be against it. But in certain situations, I, I think this one you know, obviously hits close home to us, but it applies is the fact that he kept getting stayed from 1999 to 2013. First, because his family said he was unfit to make decisions. Um, this goes back and I have to touch on this really quick. It goes back to his trial, his trial in 1999. He, appealed some verdicts meaning people meaning he appealed that he did not murder this person but he did this person and they were people that were in the same restaurant so he's saying he killed one of them but not the other Hmm. and he kept going back and forth on that he is also known for in the middle of the trial yelling out that his lawyers are actors um, and that he was upset with how they were acting towards him Um, there were signs of paranoia and then this is the craziest this came out in the trial that he thought he was under U.S. government mind control, a project called Scientific Technology uh, that monitored his every move. And I took the first part of the first word and the last part of the last word, and I came up with Scientology. Hmm. So Stretching. Yeah, but they, they uh, monitor every moves of people who are part of the Scientologist church. Okay, so you're right. building your own conspiracy. Uh, I am. Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. No. Uh, so let's let's move forward to the stays. He was. Uh, his family said he was mentally unfit to make decisions. Um, so this family were granted decision making for him, and they continued to try to appeal and stay the entire time he was in prison. And he said, right when the verdict was laid down, the seven death sentences that he wanted to die right then. But he kept uh, his family kept appealing until this was two thousand from two thousand eight to two thousand thirteen. So you're talking a five year stretch. Anti death penalty activists took over for his family, and they took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And he was one month away at one point from being executed, and it was pulled back from the Supreme Court because they couldn't prove whether this was a heinous crime or not. Not what he did, but killing somebody on a death chair through lethal injection. Gotcha. Right. So he ultimately lived out his entire life, which he shouldn't have, for taking seven lives. I no. mean, everybody has their own opinions on it, but... Sure. But he it's not just those seven lives. It's also the lives they're connected with and how that impacts family and friends of the victims and, yeah. and just so many people. It's so damaging. That guy should be dragged through the streets. I'm not. I'm not huge on capital punishment. I'm not either, really. And I understand. Like, I mean, there's so many people that have been falsely accused and incarcerated. Yeah, Yeah. falsely incarcerated. So, I mean, and then end up getting off death row, you know, because something exonerates them, you know, 20 years later. So, I, I don't know how I feel about that. But at the same time, this guy clearly. I mean, I shouldn't say clearly. This guy has all the signs of being a paranoid schizophrenic. Like sure. He obviously has some mental issues, which sucks. You know, I mean, that, that makes you have, you know, whatever. I, I'm not going to go off on that. But why did his parent or why did his family want to keep staying the executions, even though they lobbied to keep him in jail longer initially, like when he was first arrested? I have no idea. And I think it stretches because he's one of seven brothers and sisters and his parents divorced. So there was a lot of sides there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't look to see what side wanted to keep him in prison, what side wanted to stay the accus- uh, executions. But um, that that came out in his story. Um, 
Another thing he did with that uh, workers' comp money in 1992, prior to moving to Nashville, is he made like shots of himself, like with a guitar on a stool, and it is a creepy thing to look at um, because you see this guy smiling, you see this guy, and he could have been a country music star. He's wearing the not ten gallon, but the wide rimmed hat. He's got the mustache. I mean, he's got the tucked in jeans, and right. he looks the part. Um, but he came here and obviously never made it. Resorted to. Uh, working at Shoney's. It's a shame and he then, wasn't down on Music Row in 1989. That's true. Uh, we could have killed two birds with one stone. Right. Taking that guy clean out. Yep. Too bad Chuck Dixon didn't yep. run into this motherfucker. Yeah. Well, Maybe I, he did. Maybe he took all his money. Who knows? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about you guys, but I had a lot of fun kind of just diving into three more stories. Not necessarily the funnest stories, but uh, <laughs> something that you uh, continue to look into if you want. Uh, we just, I'm glad you know them because everything is part of the makeup of Nashville and everything that has happened through time and history. And, uh, you know, for two of us who are from here, uh, it's part of our makeup and it, you know, it's hesitations over time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. And it affects you like probably subconsciously, like you don't even think about it, but you've yeah. probably always been hesitant slightly about going to a fast food restaurant or something. Maybe sure. you know, like, yeah. just, I don't know if that's the best example, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, well, uh, Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to our podcast. We have fun doing this each and every week. Uh, In lieu of what everybody else says on podcast, we have developed our own, and it is just... Hug your kids. I think I'm changing it to hug your kids. <laughs> hug your fucking kids. You might yeah. want to hug after yeah, this episode. I, I, absolutely. I'm going to go home. I'm, I'm going to hug my daughter and just. Sure. We're yeah. thankful to still be here uh, in Nashville during uh, an, yet another time of rebuilding. Uh, again, thank you for listening every single week. Uh, we'll be here every Monday if you are still listening to us. So follow our socials, Raising Nashville podcast, and. Tell your mama and them. Tell your mama and them. We'll be back next week. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed listening. If you don't have children, have one. Have one. Catch up. Yeah. We want you to know what we go through. Yeah. The fear. <laughs>